The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If you have never read an entire book of the Bible before, we're going to do that now this morning. So if you'd like to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 1. I meant, I meant Philemon. If you just turn with me to Philemon, and uh, what we're doing is we're starting a series. It's just a short series uh, for all the shortest letters uh, in, in the New Testament, which are only a single chapter long. This is postcards from the past. So uh, we're going to look at uh, Second John, Third John, um, Jude, and we're starting off this morning in Philemon. So um, here goes. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Appiah, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Anasimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he has separated you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is a de- he's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. So... uh, Father, we thank you for that that, uh, wonderful picture in in Revelation of Jesus walking amongst the churches and and how he knows each one of those local churches by name and, and and their needs and their wants and their hopes. Lord Jesus, we thank you that that is true today. You walk amongst your churches and you know this local congregation. You know us here at Temple Bible Church. You know our needs and our hopes, how we need to grow and how we need to change. So Lord Jesus, we come trusting that you will speak to us through this letter once addressed to Philemon. We pray this in your name and to your glory. 
Amen. So, yeah, Philemon is actually the, the shortest epistle that Paul ever penned, at least that we have in the New Testament. It's only a single chapter long, and very, not a very long chapter of that. It's only 25 verses, which we read together just, just now. Um, some of the early church fathers said that this really wasn't worthy of an apostle, uh, that they said that it was just too short to contain any serious theology. In other words, just too short to say anything really serious about God. That, that, so it's not always been esteemed uh, as the most important letter that uh, Paul ever wrote. But I can tell you this for nothing. For the guy who first carried this letter, it was probably the most important letter that he had ever carried. For, for the man who carried the original copy of this letter, it, for in his mind, it was probably the most important letter that the Apostle Paul had ever put pen to paper to write. And here's why. This is a letter to a slave master, a slave owner. His name was Philemon. And Philemon owned a slave, and his name was Anasimus. And Anasimus had run away from his master, Philemon as slaves sometimes did back then. And he had helped himself to some of his master's stuff, maybe stolen some money, it seems. And he has, uh, as some slaves did back then, and he has run away, and he has gone now to find some help, and he has turned to one of his master's friends, who turns out to be the Apostle Paul. The trouble is, Paul is in prison. So there's a limitation on how much Paul can do from prison, right? So, so Paul's in prison. So what does he do? He sends Anasimus back to Philemon. And he sends him with this letter. Now imagine that you're Anasimus and you're showing back up at Philemon's house with knowing full well that under Roman law, a runaway, especially a runaway who had stolen, a runaway who had stolen could be put to death. Death by crucifixion. And you show up at Philemon's house knowing full well that you don't have money in your pocket to be able to pay him back for what you've stolen. You show up at Philemon's house with nothing but this letter. Now, you don't know what it says inside because the seal is still on that scroll, but, but you're, you're just hoping that whatever Paul has written, whatever he said in there is going to make some sort of sense to Philemon, that it will compel him, that it will reach him, because if it doesn't, if it doesn't, you're not sure what it says inside, but you do know that Paul has written some longer letters than this. And you're thinking to yourself, this is a little thin. This is a little flimsy. Surely Paul could have said a little more than this. And as that thought passes your mind for the hundredth time, perhaps, the door to Philemon's house suddenly opens. And there are the householders staring at you as you step across the threshold to face, well, Come what may. Whenever I think about the circumstances in which this letter was written, I, man, I, can't, I can't help but thinking, wow, Anasimus, how could you do that? I mean, that's a really gutsy, bold thing to do, to walk straight back into that. And then I get to thinking, Paul, how could you do that? How could you send Anasimus back into that? How could you send him back into slavery? It, it doesn't seem that, that freedom... And emancipation and liberation were at the top of the list of Paul's concerns here. Oh, he hints at it here and, and there. He, he does. But why doesn't he just come out and demand it? Why doesn't he just come out and, and roundly condemn this whole institution and practice with the righteous indignation that you and I would feel? Paul, what are you thinking? 
well, reading a letter to a slave master, a slave owner in 2014, we're, we're bound to have those kinds of, of questions. How, how could we not? I not only have those questions and concerns, I, I, have, I have a very, very clear idea of how I wish Paul had answered those questions and concerns. And it's not like this. Um, I bring those questions up at the front end of our message this morning because I, I think if we don't acknowledge them, first of all, they're, they're going to be something of a distraction for us. And, uh, and, and I, if, if you do have those kinds of questions and concerns, first of all, you need to know that these are important questions. These are very important and good questions and, and the right concerns, at some level, the right questions to be asking. But having said that, what I'm going to ask you to do now is to, to uh, put those questions aside for a moment. Just, just withhold judgment for a moment until we've looked at what Paul is doing and how he's doing it. And, and then, once we've looked in some detail at what Paul is up to, then judge away. Okay, feel free to judge away. Okay? But until then, just, just withhold judgment, and, and I promise you, if you can do that, we'll, we'll get there in the end. Okay? I think it's one of those really um, happy coincidences, actually a really cool coincidence of scripture, that, of, of history rather, that history has, has actually preserved for us uh, another, another letter, very similar, written at a similar time to a similar situation. Uh, but this letter I'm thinking of is not written uh, by an apostle, it is written by a Roman senator. Um, and I've got a copy of it right, right here. Um, it's not written by the apostle Paul, it is written by the Roman senator Pliny. And the circumstance for writing is this. See if this sounds familiar. A young man has got himself into trouble with his master, Sabanius. And so he has run away from Sabanius, and he has gone to find help and he, and to, from one of his master's friends. And one of Sabanius' friends happens to be the, the uh, Pliny, the, the Roman senator. So it sounds familiar, right? And, and so essentially what Pliny is doing, like Paul, is he is sending him back to his master, Sabanius, with this letter. So he's intervening, interceding on behalf of a runaway. So the circumstances are the same. And, and when you first read these letters, you think, well, they're very similar kinds of, of letters, but only superficially. But because once you read them in any detail, what you discover is that Paul and Pliny have entirely different goals, entirely different aims in mind. The, the, the um, apostle and, and the senator are making entirely different appeals on completely different grounds as well. The grounds of their appeal and the appeal that they're making completely different. So what I want to do this morning is to start out, and we won't spend too long on this, but just very briefly compare these two letters, read them alongside each other, because what I think we'll discover is that actually we'll see more clearly what Paul is doing, and we'll see how radically different Paul's view is from, of the world, from Pliny, and not just from Pliny, but from, from many of us here today, and, and from well, the way the world works today as, as well. Um, so let, let's start with, with Pliny's uh, appeal. What's the first ground of Pliny's appeal? first ground of Pliny's appeal is that he is who he is. He is the senator. He's the man at the top of the social ladder. He's at the top of the social heap. In the middle, you have Sabanius, who is slightly in awe of the great man, who wants to maintain a good relationship with this very influential man, this senator. And then at the bottom of the social heap, you have, uh, you have the runaway, who is completely at the mercy of his superiors and the decisions that they are going to make. So the first grounds of appeal is he is the senator. Imagine if you were to receive a letter written by a senator personally, by the senator written personally to you, giving you instructions on how to deal with a particular situation in your life. That might get your attention, right? Maybe you may not listen to him. 
I guess it depends on which senator you're talking about, maybe. But, but, you, but it will get your attention, right? Um, so the first grounds of appeal is the fact that he is the man at the top. How does the Apostle Paul begin his appeal? He begins like this. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. You know, Paul begins nearly all his letters by either establishing his position and authority as an apostle, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. You've read those letters, right? Or he begins by establishing his role, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. But here he has no role, and here he has no position. He is simply a prisoner. This is uniquely, this is the only letter where he begins with Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul's not a senator. He's not even an equal with Philemon and Sabanius who owned slaves. He owns no slaves. He is uh, not even a household slave. He has less rights than a household slave. He is a prisoner. Paul places himself right at the bottom of the social heap. And it's from there, from that place, that Paul begins his appeal. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He said, it is none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you. So the moment we begin to read these letters, the moment we break that seal open, what we discover is that these... These two men have radically different views of the way things like power work and authority work and influence work. Well, let, let me quickly summarize the, the rest of Pliny's argument. I'll put it up here for you. Uh, he says, you have a kind heart, Sylvanius. Don't torture yourself. Anger is always torture for a soft heart like yours. He says, he made me believe he was speaking of the runaway, genuinely sorry. I think he is a changed character because he really does feel that he did wrong. And then he says, I've given him a sharp and severe talking to, and I warned him clearly, I won't make such a request again. And finally, he says, he's young. You can always be angry again if he deserves it. So, the, let me just summarize his appeal, right? What he's saying is, look, you are such a nice guy. You're so kind-hearted. Let some of that shine through. You're such a nice guy. He's really sorry, and I have given him a good telling off. Severe talking to. Besides which, he's young. Make a concession for his youth. And hey, understand, this is all conditional, right? I mean, if, if he screws up again, then you can really, you're all the more justified, he says later on, in, in really punishing him. And don't forget that I'm the senator. So, so this is the grounds of his appeal. And, and I've got to tell you, I completely understand this kind of appeal. This makes, this makes sense to me. As, as I've tried to get people back together again, sometimes I've made this kind of appeal. Look, come on, you're kind-hearted. You're softer than that. And, and they're really sorry. I'm pretty sure they really do take seriously what they've done is, is wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure. The interesting thing is that Paul, as reasonable as all of this is, doesn't make any such appeals. This is not the grounds of Paul, Paul's appeal. He doesn't appeal to Philemon's better nature. He doesn't say anything about Anasimus feeling sorry for what he's done or that he's going to work extra hard now to make up for the stuff he stole from you. He, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. In, in, instead, here's what Paul does. First of all, Paul turns to Philemon. And if you want to think of the first seven verses of this letter as kind of an embrace, they're an embrace, those first seven verses. He embraces Philemon. He does everything he can to identify himself as closely as possible to Philemon. And here's how he does it. He says, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective. You, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. He calls him a dear friend, a fellow worker. He talks about his partnership. He calls him brother. Dear friend and brother. 
And so having identified himself as closely as possible with Philemon, he then turns around and he does the same with Anasimus. He identifies himself as closely as possible with Anasimus. He says, I appeal to you for my son, Anasimus, who became my son while I was in chains. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. He is very dear to me. He's very dear to me. He's my very heart. He is my son. So he identifies himself as closely as he can with Anasimus. Now having identified himself with both Philemon and Anasimus, having embraced them both, then Paul delivers his punchline. And, and this is kind of the whole letter hinges on this, verses 17, 18, and 19. Okay? This is the punchline. The letter hinges on this. Paul says, now, receive Anasimus, welcome Anasimus as if you were receiving me, Paul. Welcome Anasimus, and if Anasimus owes you anything, put it to my account. I'll pay you back. His debt is now my debt. Of course, this is a kind of a, an ironic IOU. But because, of course, what Paul says in verse 19, he says, of course, once you look at my account, you'll see that I owe you nothing, because you, Philemon, owe me your very life, your very self. So it's an ironic IOU, right? But, but you see what he's done. He's identified himself as closely as possible with Philemon and then as closely as possible as Anasimus. So much so that for Philemon to embrace Anasimus is to embrace Paul. And, and for Philemon to receive payment from Paul is to receive payment from Anasimus. What he's done is Paul has substituted himself, that's an important word which we'll come back to in a bit, substituted himself for Anasimus. So essentially what's happening is that both men, Philemon and Anasimus, are being brought together in him as if Paul were Christ. Paul, as, as Philemon, as uh, the great reformer Martin Luther said, Paul is playing Christ for these men. He's enacting the gospel. And he's bringing the, it's as if God were in Paul, bringing these, reconciling these men to each other and ultimately to himself. He's playing, as Martin Luther says, Christ in this drama, Christ for these men. And the result? Well, the result is beautiful. The result is koinonia. Koinonia is, is the Greek word which, which we translate fellowship, right? And, and sometimes, what do you think of when you think of fellowship? I think sometimes we think of it as kind of enjoying each other's company. Enjoying the company of other Christians. Uh, but koinonia actually carries greater weight than that. Koinonia, it's, it's difficult to translate into English, but it, it carries with it this idea of mutual identification. I'm, I'm going to put that up on the, on the screen here. Koinonia, mutual identification. And, and there, are, there are various ways that Paul talks about this throughout the, the, the New Testament. One of the ways that he talks about koinonia, this, this mutual identification, is, is by talking about our, our emotions. He, he talks about rejoicing with those who rejoice, being elated with those who are, being, uh, who are elated, celebrating with those who are celebrating because their joy is our joy, their victory is our victory. He wants us to be that closely identified, so closely identified that with each other that we would mourn with those who mourn, that we would weep with those, literally cry tears with those who are, who are crying. Paul wants us to be that closely identified. Koinonia. Another way that Paul talks about this mutual identification, this koinonia, is when he uses these kind of familial terms. Uh, he, he uses it right here. This is a great example. He calls uh, Appius, Appia, uh, one of the householders, he calls, says, you are my sister. He says, Philemon, you are my brother. Anasimus is my son. 
He, he uses these family terms because he wants us to be that closely identified that we would see ourselves as the same family. Uh, another way that Paul talks about koinonia is, is in terms of body life. Mutual identification in terms of body life. We are part of the same body so that if, if one part is honored, we are all honored. And if one part suffers, we, we all suffer. You know, it would be like me cutting my finger and saying, well, that's my finger that's bleeding and suffering over there, not me. That, that would be odd, right? That would be an odd kind of, of detachment. Um, if I, it's like me having a very uh, bad upper respiratory infection like I've had all week. And if I'm suffering like that, I'm going to make sure that my wife suffers with me as, as, as well, right? Um, and I'm going to whine and I'm going to whinge all, all week. And actually, she's got very good at tuning, tuning me out. And, uh, and I'm like, hey, how about some koinonia here, you know? And uh, it, it, it doesn't get me very far. But, but it's that, it's, you see, he wants us to be bound together that way. He wants that mutual identification, koinonia. Um, I think it was over a year ago now, I spoke about my small group, um, nearly a year and a half ago, about our small group, which uh, is, is very diverse. And uh, uh, there was something I didn't get to tell you about that, which I want to tell you about this, this morning. Um, but but uh, I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But if you remember, I said that in our small group, we have people in there who were never very big fans of George W. Bush. And, and we actually have a, a guy in there who is Secret Service and assigned to protecting George W. out of the ranch and, and, and just spent a weekend not long ago out biking with him and, and everything. Um, we, we have people in there who are very anti-gun. And uh, we have a guy in there who not only uh, collects guns, but he manufactures weapons for a living. He's a gunsmith, right? Um, and, and we have people in there who are six-day creationists, literalists of Genesis chapter 1. And there are others who uh, are theistic evolutionists in there as well. We have people in there who have struggled with homophobia and others who have actually struggled with the gay lifestyle. It's also very ethnically diverse as well. We, we have Chinese, Taiwanese, Korean, uh, Brazilian, recently African. Uh, am I missing anyone there? Um, there there's, uh, the ones you really got to watch for are the Armenians, of course. You've got, you've got to watch... Um, um, the, 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 so, so it's very diverse. What I didn't get to tell you last time is, is the fact that it didn't start out with lots of warm fuzzies. People didn't come in there trusting each other and, and embracing each other and, and, and really just, you know, just all getting along just, just fine. Actually, it was very difficult for some people at first. When they first started coming, they, they weren't sure about each other. They were suspicious of each other. So much so that in the, in the first, some people said that in, in the first two or three visits, after about two or three visits, they were like, oh, I'm done with that. <laughs> uh, we're not going back to that. They were suspicious of each other. It was very difficult. But, but you know what happened? <laughs> I think there were one or two individuals in that group, several of them, who decided, no, I'm, I'm going to be a bridge here. I'm going to be a bridge. I'm going to lead these people back to each other. And, and, you know, and they kept coming back. And now they experience, not, not koinonia as in tolerating each other, or koinonia as in, you know, we, we enjoy each other's company on a good day. No, but, but they experience koinonia in the sense of being mutually identified. If one part suffers, we all suffer. If one part rejoices, we all rejoice together. Um, I, I just want to stop and, and make an application point here. Um, some of you are wondering, well, what's the take-home? What, what do I do with this? Well, here it is. Have you ever done for someone what the Apostle Paul 
does here for Philemon and Anathemus. Have you ever done this for someone else? Have you ever identified yourself so closely with someone that you could literally substitute you for them, for that someone? So you could say stuff like the Apostle Paul says, look, if you welcome this guy, you're welcoming and embracing me. And and whatever he owes you, put it to my account because his debt is now my debt. Have you ever done what Paul has done for Anathemus and Philemon here, playing Christ and acting the gospel for them? Have you ever done? Let let me ask this question in in another way. Does your life lead people together who, under ordinary circumstances, because of just the way the world is, right? Just the way the world is, would never in a million years be together. These people would never in a million years, they would never be together. But does your life lead somehow lead those people back together? Pointing them to the cross, to the gospel. Do you enact Jesus for them? Do you enact the gospel for them? Um, you see, I have a very, very high view of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Well, what, what is that? Well, well, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is, is the fact that Jesus Christ has so closely identified himself with me and with you. He's so closely identified himself with us that he has literally substituted himself for us. He's literally substituted himself for us. So that he has taken my sin upon himself. He's taken your sin upon himself. And, and, he has, and he's paid the debt that I could not pay. He has paid my debt. He's identified himself so closely with us, right? That, that when God receives us and welcomes us, he welcomes us as if we were Christ. As if we were Jesus. I have a very, very high view of the, of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That great exchange. But, if that theological fact, if that theological reality doesn't utterly disrupt your social reality, if it doesn't tear down walls and barriers and fences and divisions that have been put up by this world, if that theological reality doesn't bring unity where there was once division, and togetherness, where there was once separation, then my question is, have you really read and understood Philemon? Have you, have you really understood what Paul is saying here? Have you understood what the doctrine of substitutionary atonement really means? Have you, have you understood the gospel? It's worth, worth thinking about. Because, because who really cares about what you think or believe about that theological fact if it hasn't? utterly disrupted your social reality if it hasn't changed your life in this way you know we were so encouraged uh, a few um, a few weeks ago as, as a staff team actually as a leadership we when when gary asked uh, the congregation said how many of you are in small group and that sunday a bunch of people raised their hands to say that they were to signify the fact that they were in small small groups and, and that's the, the most, you want to encourage the leadership of this church, that, that's how to do it right there. Because that, what that tells us is that you guys aren't just um, out, out there uh, coming on a Sunday and then disappearing again. You're, some of you are actually involved in each other's lives. You're, you're kind of working towards this koinonia thing. So, so I just want to, to ask you for, for a moment to, to think about the small group that you are part of. Just think about your small group. Think about their faces. Just think about their stories. 
Think about the different paths that they have been on to take them to that place, to bring them to that together. Think about how different some of those people are from each other. Maybe they're very, very different from you as well. Just think, think about them for a moment. Now ask yourself this question, what work needs to be done? Oh, there's always work that needs to be done. So what work needs to be done to bring these people together? What work? You see, there are so many things in this, in this world that are going to try to divide us, to separate us, to keep, it as, keep us apart. The question is, does your life transcend those lines, your life in Christ, does your life in Christ transcend those lines of division and, and, I, and lead people back to each other and ultimately back to God? What work do you need to do to bring those people back together? Maybe there's a couple of individuals who you need to substitute yourself for, who you, you need to be that bridge that will lead them back to each other and back to God. Um, <clears throat> our dear friend who, and brother, Celeste Musakura, uh, I've spoken of him m- many times, and I just want to keep telling uh, his, his story, uh, parts of it anyway. Um, he established the ministry, African Leadership and Reconcili- Reconciliation Ministry, and um, he, his ministry, if you want to understand what this man's ministry in life is about, it, it, understand Philemon. This, this is what, what Paul does here for Philemon and Onesimus. This is what Celestine has been doing. And he's been doing it on a huge scale. He is so mutually identified with the suffering of his brothers and sisters in Africa that he makes these long and arduous and dangerous journeys into very dangerous parts of Africa, um, like the, the Sudan, for instance. And... Um, he has been kidnapped and, and tortured on, on numerous occasions, several occasions. But he keeps making these journeys because he's mutually identified with them. His ministry began in Rwanda after the, the uh, terrible, the, the, after the genocide, which had its roots in, in this kind of tribalism. They were divided into this tribe of Hutus and that tribe of Tutsis. And the Hutus and Tutsis slaughtered each other. So he comes in there and he identifies himself so closely with the Hutus and he says, you are my brother or you are my son. And he identifies with the Tutsis. He says, you are my brother, you are my son, you are my sister. And, and it's as if God were in Celestine reconciling these men, to these groups to each other. As, as uh, the reformer said, Paul is playing Christ. I mean, he's playing, Celestine is playing Christ to these people. Um, just as this has happened, you know, the news of this koinonia and what that looks like has, has spread as, it's, as it emerges in different towns and villages where this work is going on. And so it's now reached the years of these Muslim clerics, these mullahs. And they've said to Celestine, come, come to our town, come to our village and you, you teach us. And, and he says, you do understand, I'm going to be preaching from the angel, from the New Testament. And you do understand that everything I say has to do with Jesus. And they say, yeah, we don't care. They're tired of the bloodshed. We don't care. We need what you've got. Please come. And, and so, of course, the gospel is being taken there and they're being reached with the gospel and, and people are coming to Christ. It's an incredible... The, 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 it is so profound what, what he's doing out there. And um, just, just this last week, he's been out in... Uh, in the Sudan, where there has been terrible uh, bloodshed between the ethnic Christians and ethnic Muslims. And he's sitting down with them and he's identifying with the Christians and he's mutually identifying with the Muslims. And you're thinking, well, wait a second. If they're Muslims, they're not Christians. That means they can't really be part of the body of Christ. I, I get that. <laughs> we all get that. 
But I would respond with Paul's words. Don't forget that once you too were far off from God, enemies in your hearts and minds because of your evil behavior, as Paul says. So to return um, to that, that question, that troubling question we had at the beginning about, you know, how come Paul doesn't just condemn slavery and demand anatomous release right now and, and emancipation? I've got some other troubling questions as well. I'd like to add to that list. How come Paul doesn't speak out against male chauvinism, oppression of women, brutality to women? How come he doesn't stand up and speak out against that and push back on chauvinism with some feminism? How come Paul doesn't speak out against racism and ethnocentrism by talking about pluralism and multiculturalism? How come Paul, doesn't Paul care about this stuff? How come Paul doesn't talk about economic injustice and, and, and poverty and oppression by talk, pushing back with some economic reform and talking about his favorite economic theory? How come, doesn't Paul care about, of course Paul cares about all of these injustices. But he is thoroughly convinced that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, slavery. There is neither Jew nor Greek, racism. There is neither male nor female, male chauvinism. But all are one in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He, you see, of course Paul cares about this stuff, but he is blowing it up from the inside. He's blowing it up from the inside. So, so that he's, he, How long do you think that an institution and an evil like slavery can last when koinonia is a reality of the day? How long do you think that racism and ethnocentrism can last when koinonia is the reality of the day? How long do you think that, that brutality to women can last uh, when koinonia, that mutual identification in Christ, is the reality of the day? He cares about it. But he's blowing it up from the inside. I actually think that if, if Philemon had granted Anasimus his freedom right there and then, but then said, but I never want to see you again, Paul would have counted it a loss. Well, what are the results of this kind of appeal? Well, well let's, let's quickly close here by, by comparing again those two letters one from the Roman Senator Pliny, the other from the Apostle Paul. Pliny's letter works. Well, works in inverted commas. I mean, it, it works in the sense that his friend Sabanius listened to him. How do we know this? Because we've actually got a follow-up letter. And in that letter, Pliny says to Sabanius, well done for listening to me. Right? You did what I said. You went easy on, on that runaway. Um, but it leaves their social reality untouched. The lines of division unmoved unhindered. They're right as the, everything's as it was. Pliny's a man at the top, Sylvanius is a man in the middle, and the runaway is a man at the bottom of the social heap, thankful to these men and just determined to keep his head down and not screw up anymore. Their social reality is untouched. What about Paul's letter? Well, unfortunately we don't have the follow-up letter, um, but I think we're on safe grounds to say that this letter was successful uh, because otherwise this letter wouldn't really have survived much past its first reading and then Philemon would have torn it up and chucked it into the fire. Actually, um, there is uh, later on, uh, Ignatius, one of the early church fathers, Ignatius makes reference to a bishop in Ephesus just down the road from Philemon. And uh, he, this bishop is Bishop Anasimus. 
which would also explain why such a short and unimportant letter was preserved, found perhaps in a collection of the bishop's papers. Who knows? Perhaps the good bishop even had it framed and put up in his office. Let's come before God in prayer. Jesus, we're so grateful for what you have done for us. The reality of your substituting yourself for us. Father, we pray that that reality would, that theological reality would utterly wreck and, and disturb our social reality. That it would tear down the walls and the barriers and divisions that have been put up by this world. That there would be unity and, and togetherness where there was separation and division in Christ. Father, for those of us who, who are involved in each other's lives, I, I pray that we would enact the gospel for each other. That we would be that bridge where we need to be that bridge that our lives would lead people back to each other and ultimately back to you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.